Okay, let's go ahead and turn our attention now to Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is God's word. Would you pray with me now? Father, we, uh, we are like sheep, and we tend to go astray, and we need a shepherd to guide us. Father, thank you for being our shepherd. We acknowledge your ownership over our lives. We rejoice in your glorious might and your unmatched authority and your uh, sovereign rule over the universe, and we invite you to rule in our hearts. Lord, this morning, uh, we know that your heart is tender toward your children and that you desire to give good gifts to your people, and so we ask that you would give the gift of comfort and peace to the Grulick family as they grieve uh, the loss of Rita. We know that she is with you and uh, that she is enjoying your presence. But I pray that you would comfort Margie and Ethan and Jessica and the rest of the family as they uh, wade through the loss and lean on you during this time. Father, as our attention this week is going to turn toward 20 years after September 11th, I pray for all of the victims of that and their families and and the many veterans and their families who have given so much of their life to the war effort in Afghanistan. And, And Father, I'm not even sure what the meaning of all of that is, but I pray that you would just be present with those individuals and uh, comfort them with your peace. And I pray that they would, even though uh, perhaps some things happen that are extremely difficult and hard to understand, I pray that you would show them that you are in control and that you are always good and that even though you don't tell us the reasons why, you allow specific things that you always have a good reason. And I pray that you would use this service this week to uh, show our uh, first responders, our firefighters and police officers and EMTs and others, uh, that they are not alone in this city, but that there is a, a community of faithful people who want to bear witness to the goodness and glory of Christ, and uh, that we are uh, here to be a, a shining light in our neighborhood. Lord, we pray 
uh, as well for uh, Bethel Baptist Church here in Mineral Wells and Pastor Larry Kimbrough. Lord, we, we ask that you would make them a congregation who is strong, that's faithful, that uh, is thriving, that is fruitful in ministry. And I ask that you would just pour out your blessing on Pastor Kimbrough and enable him to experience your anointing and your power as he preaches the word. Uh, Lord, we pray for our Awana ministry as it begins this week, that it would not just be a time of fun and games, although we do want it to be that, but that it would be a time when young people of all ages are arrested by the goodness and glory of Christ and their desperate need for a Savior and the invitation of welcome to all who believe in him to be called the sons and daughters of God. I pray that you would use this ministry to change lives and impact eternity. Lord, we pray for our meeting this afternoon. We ask that you would give us wisdom as a church to ask the right questions and to make the decisions you want us to make. I pray that you would uh, enable us to experience the unity of the Holy Spirit and that you would give us grace to pursue that unity in all ways. And Lord, as we turn to your word and ask How are you, the good shepherd? I pray that you would show that to us and that you would change our hearts to be sheep who are obedient and who draw near to you. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. On a crisp morning in 2008, an Oxford postgraduate and a Bedouin tribesman met for the first time by chance at the summit of Mount Sinai in Egypt's Sinai Peninsula, where they had both arrived minutes apart in order to catch the sunrise. As the sun grew hot, they began to talk. Both had grown to love the Sinai Desert. Both felt that the world needed to be able to experience its beauty and its grandeur and its history. Both knew that a tremendous cooperative effort would be required for this to take place. Ben Loeffler and Faraj Mahmoud arrived at the summit strangers. They descended as friends, and later on, before long, they would become partners in a remarkable enterprise that would open up 550 kilometers of hiking trail to visitors who were willing to take on not only the physical demands of such a trek, but to move past the earned reputation of the Sinai Peninsula as a breeding ground for terrorists. Since the trail opened in 2015, hundreds of hikers uh, from all around the world have walked these hallowed desert paths that were first trod by Moses and the children of Israel thousands of years ago. Uh, Of course, to call them paths is really generous and actually probably inaccurate. To the untrained eye, the Sinai Trail is a desolation stretching for hundreds of miles in every direction. There are no paved walkways. There are no trees with trail markers. Just an infinite array of massive stones and unforgiving mountains. If you were to go and try to walk the Sinai Trail today without a guide, even for a day or two, Without the expert assistance of Bedouin guides, you would almost certainly lose your way and eventually die of thirst and exposure. There is no way to walk the path without a guide. 
In fact, navigating the trail is so difficult that one guide can't even do the whole thing. And in fact, a whole Bedouin tribe isn't able to, to share enough knowledge to take someone around the entire path. Hikers are passed from one tribe to the next in succession. Guides spend their lives developing a mental map of landmarks on just one section of the peninsula, following their more experienced fathers and grandfathers in a navigational tradition stretching back thousands of years. If you're visiting with us, typically we study biblical books paragraph by paragraph on Sunday mornings. But occasionally we go to Scripture and we come to the entire Bible and ask of it a specific question and say, what does the whole Bible say about this or that topic? And that's what we're doing right now. What does the whole Bible say? Beginning last Sunday, we've begun a topical study of God's self-identification as our good shepherd. This is one of the most pervasive images in the whole Bible. I mean, if you just look at the times that the, the word shepherd is mentioned in in equation with God himself. It's dozens of times, but then add to that all the subtle images and references to the Lord as our shepherd. It is all over the place. And of course, we, his people, are compared to the sheep of his flock. And if we are going to understand what is meant in Scripture... By these images and illustrations, then we must understand that behind all of that is the very landscape that I was just describing in the Sinai Peninsula. You see, in Western contexts like ours in the United States, in the United Kingdom, in in much of continental Europe, the notion of caring for sheep or other livestock is associated with staying put. I, I mean, think about it. A man buys a piece of land... He cultivates and cares for it. He he tills the soil. He plows the land. He rotates his flocks or his herds so that he doesn't overgraze. Then maybe his son takes over and adds to the family property and increases its value. And then he passes it on to his son and so on and so forth. That's what we think of in our minds when we think of the, a, a shepherd or someone who raises animals. A few of you have that kind of history. You can trace your lineage back Uh, several generations, and you tie it to a, a specific piece of land. But one of the things that we have to understand about the biblical idea of a shepherd is that shepherds in many Eastern contexts are not like that. Shepherds in the world of the Bible are not landowners, but nomads. They are migrants. They travel with their flocks for hundreds of miles across thousands of acres of wilderness in order to ensure that their flocks had enough to eat and drink in the arid and semi-arid climates of the Fertile Crescent. Just like hikers on the Sinai Trail will die without a Bedouin guide, Just like sheep and goats wandering the same regions in ancient herds would die without the leadership of a Bedouin shepherd, so the children of Israel would have died without the good shepherd leading them in the days of Moses. Friends, the the landscape of life is much more like the arid desert climates of the Sinai Peninsula than the bucolic pastures fenced in by a sturdy fence. And so we need a shepherd. We need a guide. 
It's as simple as that. And so today, what we're going to see from Scripture is that God, the good shepherd, leads his sheep. He leads us. He tells us where to go, and we must follow if we want to live. Say, why is that? Well, there are three reasons why. First of all, notice with me that the good shepherd leads his sheep because we cannot lead ourselves. The good shepherd leads his sheep because we cannot lead ourselves. One of the scariest things ever said about a group of people in the Bible is to assert that they're like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, In Numbers 27, as Moses begins to plan for his upcoming death, he prays to the Lord on behalf of the flock of Israel, and he asks the Lord, let the Lord appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep without a shepherd. Centuries later, when a prophet is called upon to speak a word from the Lord to King Ahab, the king of the northern tribes of Israel, he utters a pronouncement of condemnation. He says, I saw all Israel scatter on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. Translation, you're a bad leader, people are going to die. Of course, as we saw last week, Jesus' very ministry was an indictment of the religious leaders of the day. He had compassion on the crowds. Do you remember from Mark chapter 6? Why? Because they were like sheep that had no shepherd. Why this repeated trope in Scripture? Why is it so tragic for people to be like sheep without a shepherd? Because we can't lead ourselves. We need a shepherd because we cannot lead ourselves. And there are three ways in which I feel like Scripture teaches that we cannot lead ourselves. Three realities. First of all, we don't have the authority to lead ourselves. We don't have the authority to lead ourselves. Remember what the psalmist said in the 100th Psalm. He said, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. It is he who has made us and we are his. In the 50th Psalm, uh, the the psalmist reminds us, God says this, every beast of the forest is mine. And the cattle upon a thousand hills. How much more all the people that he has made. We belong to him. We don't have the authority to lead ourselves. Only he does. So what I mean to say is that if you are within the sound of my voice, you do not have the right, you do not have the authority to chart your own course. You don't have, you must follow the leadership of the good shepherd and he has every right to tell you what to do because he made you. Now, I recognize that this flies in the face of our modern sensibilities, doesn't it? The single central theme of modern life is that you must be true not to God's calling on your life, but to yourself, to your own heart. And within the modern worldview, this makes total sense. In, in our equipping class this past summer, we talked a lot about that. Uh, the, material mindset, the materialistic mindset of our culture preaches a gospel of what Carl Truman calls expressive individualism. You aren't, you're not designed by a creator. You are, you're really nothing more than a body, an animal, if you will. You're the product of billions of years of unguided natural selection. Nobody can tell you what to do. Nobody can tell you what you're supposed to be because you're really just a collection of chemicals. That's all you really actually are. So if you really want to find meaning, and every human being does, then you're going to have to create it for yourself. You want to be religious? Great. 
As long as you're authentically doing that because you really want to do it, you want to give yourself to sports and, and physical health, hey, you do you. That's great. You want to get a divorce? Go for it. If it makes you happy, and if your parents and if your, your friends and, and, and other people in your life and your kids, if they aren't happy for you, then they don't really love you because what life is really about is you creating meaning for yourself and then going for it. This is what the world tells us, folks. You hear this shouted at you from every angle every day, and most people don't even recognize that it is totally antithetical to the, to the teachings of Holy Scripture. When I talk with people in the community about what I do for a living, uh, it's always been this way. Often, if there's someone who doesn't, didn't grow up going to church or they are uh, not religious in any way, uh, they often just assume that I'm a preacher because it's something that makes me feel better about myself and that my job is to make other people feel better about themselves. And like I'm just using a, a religious set of tools in order to do that very thing. So some people do religion, uh, uh, some people go to therapy, other people do CrossFit, other people save up for a vacation. You do Jesus, that's great. Whatever works for you. But folks, let me tell you something. What we gather here every Sunday to do it is not about feeling better or creating an identity for ourselves. What we gather here to do is to recognize and remember and rejoice in the reality that the God of all the earth, the God who existed from before the beginning, who knit us together in the womb, demands that all his creatures worship him and rest in his mercies. The God who is actually there. God is our good shepherd. And while that image might leave you feeling warm and fuzzy, never forget that as the shepherd, he is our king. He is our sovereign. He is our Lord. He's the one who possesses all the rights over every single part of our person. You can't lead yourself. You don't have the authority. You don't have the right to do that. Only our good shepherd has the right to tell us what to do. Second way in which we can't lead ourselves, we don't have the authority, first of all, but secondly, we don't have the morality to lead ourselves. But we don't have the morality you ever read the book of Judges in the Old Testament? If you were to pull it out of the context of the larger sweep of Scripture, uh, the book of Judges, I think, has to be the most depressing part of the Bible. I mean, it's just brutal to read through those chapters. Uh, describes centuries following the death of Moses, during which time the children of Israel devolve into violence and debauchery again and again. The level of degradation is sickening, even by modern standards. And the author of the book, if you've read through Judges more than once, you know that, that there's kind of a recurring theme. What does the author say again and again? Because he wants us to get the point. He says, in those days, there was what? There was no, there was no, does anybody know? In those days, there was no, shout it if you know it. There was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. No king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Can you imagine that? I mean, imagine if we lived in a society where nobody told you what to do, where everybody could do whatever they wanted to do. Wouldn't that be so great? No. 
And all you have to do is read the Old Testament book of Judges to know that. You see, God didn't make us this way. We're this way because Adam and Eve long ago chose to sin and disobey God's word. And so every one of us inherits this corrupted moral nature. We're created in the image of God, but that image has been twisted. It's been marred. It's been kind of ruined. And we can't fix ourselves and straighten ourselves out. And so left to ourselves, we're going to go off the path. We can't lead ourselves. We don't have the morality to do that. Paul says, there's, not, there's, there's none righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We need the shepherd to lead us because without him, we will always, always descend into destruction. But God is gracious. What does it say in the 23rd Psalm? He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. We need that. We can't find those paths on our own. We don't have the authority to lead ourselves. We don't, excuse me, have the morality to lead ourselves. We also don't have the wisdom to lead ourselves. Uh, We don't know what the future holds, but the good shepherd does. We don't know what everybody else is thinking We don't have comprehensive knowledge of our circumstances and our surroundings. Folks, most days, we don't even understand what we ourselves are thinking and feeling. But our good shepherd knows all of those things. And by the way, think about even the things that you do know, what percentage of those things do you even have any control over? Like the smallest sliver. And yet our good shepherd is so wise, so powerful, that his his knowledge is comprehensive, his skill is infinite, his goodness is unlimited, his authority is absolute. So friends, what I'm saying is that we don't have, we can't lead ourselves, but our good shepherd has the might, he has the authority, he has the wisdom to lead us well. So this whole thing of going after your own desires and following your heart, why would you do that? Follow the shepherd. The good shepherd leads his sheep because we cannot lead ourselves. Secondly, though, consider with me that the good shepherd leads his sheep because the path is fraught with danger. The path is fraught with danger. The 23rd Psalm reminds us that we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Uh, Young David, when he volunteers to fight Goliath, recounts how he had to defend the flock against a lion and a bear. Jesus himself speaks of the dangers facing the flock in the Gospel of John. There are thieves, they want to climb over the wall of the fold and steal and kill and destroy Paul warns of vicious wolves who will come in and they're not going to spare the flock. We need a good shepherd to lead us because the path is fraught with danger. In fact, I can think of three categories of danger that lie across our path. First of all, understand that for sheep, the darkness is deadly. The darkness is deadly. Here's what I mean. Shepherds in the ancient Near East, uh, they understood the most dangerous time for their flock was after the sun went down. Wolves, other predators, uh, stalked hungrily around the, the perimeter of the flock. Sheep-stealing bandits would ply their trade under cover of darkness. Even, think about this, under the, the shadow of the sheep's wool lay tiny parasites trying to devour their flesh. 
And it's a little different among the sheep of God's flock. False teachers sneak around the edges of the flock. They hide their fangs under cover of darkness. They obfuscate. They try to deceive. The spiritual powers, like the robbers of old, they want to kill and steal and destroy. Secret sins eat away at us from the inside out. And what I mean is, every sheep of the flock faces temptations to sin. Temptations to believe a lie. Temptations to harbor bitterness and anger and lust and other sins of the mind and the affections. The world and the flesh and the devil, they're all strategizing and scheming with their armies, lurking around the edges of the flock, trying to find someone vulnerable that they can pick off. The path is fraught with danger because darkness is deadly, but also because the path itself is perilous. The path itself is perilous. If the darkness suggests the ways in which the enemies of the flock prey on the sheep through temptations to sin, the path itself is illustrative of the way that the trials and sufferings of life can threaten to trip us up. The path is fraught with danger because of these trials and these temptations. It's also fraught with danger because sustenance is scarce. You go out in the world, and and isn't this the case? You're hungry for truth. You're hungry for encouragement, and you're not going to find it in the world. Sustenance is scarce. So we need a shepherd who will lead us so that we might not find ourselves starving for the truth. The path that we're traveling is a dangerous path, so we need a good shepherd who will lead us. By the way, Uh, do not make the mistake of thinking that the dangers of life, the temptations, the trials, the scarcity of sustenance and truth have no purpose. Don't make that mistake. They do have a purpose. Uh, No, our shepherd leads us on these dangerous paths for a reason. Uh, English sheep farmer James Rebanks, in his best-selling book, memoir, uh, The Shepherd's Life, describes the way that he has continued a multi-century family tradition of raising Herdwick sheep on the rugged fells of northern England's Lake District. Has anybody ever been to the Lake District in, in England? Me neither. I had to read about it for the first time. Apparently it's beautiful. But each year the sheep are rotated between the fenced-in pastures and, and meadows of the valley and the... Uh, uh, in, in the summertime, or I'm sorry, in the wintertime, and then in the summertime, they're, they're taken up to the high-altitude ranges, the open ranges of the fells, only to be driven down again for lambing or shearing. And, and apparently, the climate in those fells on those mountainsides is really extreme. That Between the rain and the cold and the driving winds and the scarcity of the grass, uh, Herdwick sheep raised in these picturesque mountain heights They have become, over the generations, the hardiest breed of sheep in the entire United Kingdom. So much so that the surplus of those flocks, they call them tups, young males, are sold as breeder stock to farms in the south. Uh, Sheep breeders want these Herdwick sheep because they thrive no matter the circumstances. Flocks throughout the entire country can trace their lineage to the fells. Forcing their flocks to live in the howling wilderness of these fells makes life difficult for the sheep of the Lake District, but it's this very hardship that gives them the strength to thrive. Folks, this is what our Good Shepherd does. He 
He leads us through the valley of death's dark shadow. He guides us through desolate lands, through wind and rain and the beating sun. And make no mistake, he is absolutely just as much in control in those moments as he is when the sun is shining. Why does he do that? Because he has plans for us. Because he wants to strengthen us. Because he wants to refine and purify our faith. Because he understands something that we often forget. That the kind of faith that is tested, that comes out refined and pure as gold, is more precious than anything that we could possess. He wants us to have some spiritual toughness so that when the trials come and the temptations come, it may not be fun, but we will not break. We will stand in the evil day. And in those moments, he doesn't leave us alone. Many of you can testify to this. In the darkest times, he meets you in your pain, in your sorrow, in temptation. He guides you through those valleys. I've heard more than one believer tell me that this week. Without me asking. They just volunteered it. I'm going through a hard time. It's extremely difficult. It's the toughest time of my life, but God is with me now. We need our shepherd to lead us because the pathways of life are fraught with danger, the dangers of temptation, the dangers of suffering and trials, uh, the dangers of scarcity and loneliness. We, we can't lead ourselves. We can't navigate the dangers. But then consider with me in the third place that the good shepherd leads his sheep because we have a destination. The good shepherd leads his sheep because we have a destination. Like Abraham setting out from Mesopotamia for Haran and then eventually Canaan, like Jacob migrating down to Egypt, like Moses trekking with the thousands of Israel through the barren Sinai wilderness, like the exiles journeying back to Jerusalem after decades in exile, the Good Shepherd is taking all of us on a journey as well. We have a destination. This is the way of ancient Near Eastern shepherds. For a flock to stay in one place in that arid climate is death. It's destruction. They cannot stay put. They have to move. There's not enough food. There's not enough water. They must wander, dwelling in tents and sheltering in caves, sojourners and strangers in every place they stop to rest. And from earliest times, the motif of a flock following a shepherd becomes this root metaphor for the way that we're following this quest, the quest of the people of God. The, the, the children of Israel started out in Egypt and they guided by their good shepherd through the wastelands, eventually crossed the Jordan into the promised land. It's this very idea that the psalmist recalls at the end of the 23rd Psalm. After the long journey past still waters and green pastures and through the valley of the shadow of death, what do we see? There's a destination. There's a victorious banquet in the presence of vanquished foes. A home in the house of the Lord forever. Even in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, when John wants to talk about the, the martyrs who were, were killed, whose blood was shed during a time of great tribulation, he says the lamb in the midst of the throne shall be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You say, what does it mean for the Lord to be my shepherd? He's taking me to a destination. 
Part of what it means for us to say the Lord is my shepherd is the core conviction that he himself is taking us somewhere. He is not keeping us where we are. We don't belong here. The life of a shepherd is the life of a pilgrim. It's the life of a traveler, untethered from the earth. And I just wonder how many of us today are completely confused about the nature of the Christian life. I mean, I hear people talk. I hear myself talk sometimes. And uh, so many times, it's it's this belief that following Jesus is about unlocking a greater level of of happiness or serenity just in day-to-day life and nothing else. Your marriage will be better if you follow Jesus. You'll have more emotional wellness if you follow Jesus. You might not get a windfall of riches, but you'll probably learn some financial tips from the Bible, and you'll have a little bit more money if you follow Jesus. And while a lot of that is true, when we talk about Jesus being our good shepherd, we're thinking, how nice would that be? How nice? When I'm wandering around the meadows of life, and just within the safe fences of that meadow, this nice shepherd is watching over me and making sure I don't leap over a cliff or get snatched away by the devil. So thank you, Jesus. This is such a beautiful picture. Folks, that's, that's not the entirety of what it means to follow Jesus. It means to acknowledge first and foremost that his absolute authority is over me. He is my king. He gets to say where I should go and what I should do. And I've not obeyed my king. I deserve his ire and his wrath. I need forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation. But Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He gave himself on my behalf. He bore my sin in his body on the the On the cross, he took it all so that he might bring me back and be the shepherd and the overseer of my soul. And as a Christian, I know that the world is passing away. That that judgment is going to fall on the devil and his armies. And the wickedness of the world in which we sojourn. But my shepherd is taking me out of this world and he is taking me to a different destination. A new creation where there is not death nor sickness nor crying anymore. The house of the Lord where the Lamb of God himself will shepherd us. Following Christ means believing that all that is in the world is not worth comparing with the glories of that new creation. It means believing by faith all that he has promised and then denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following him. And you cannot do it if you live your life by the physical eyes. You've got to have the eyes of faith. The good shepherd leads us not only because we cannot lead ourselves, not only because the path is dangerous, but because he's taking us to a place we see by faith that far surpasses the pain and the pleasure of the present. You say, what does all that mean practically? Well, first of all, it means that if you're a lost sheep... That is, if you are a human being who has been setting his own agenda, you may not realize that you're a lost sheep, but that is what you are. And if that's the case, then you must, as the Apostle Peter says, return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You must turn away. You must repent from your sin and your self-reliance and entrust yourself to the Savior for forgiveness. 
Only then can you say that you have any right to be called a son or a daughter of God. This is what John says. Those who believe to them, he gave the authority to become the children of God. Secondly, for those of us who are believers, it seems to me that there are at least three entailments. One, the Christian life is a life of humility. We are sheep. We are not in charge. You remember what Peter says in the passage that Gary read earlier? Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Two, the Christian life is a life of obedience. And I just wonder if the Holy Spirit is convicting you today about some specific area of disobedience, some way where the the shepherd's taking you this direction and you're just wanting to go over here and veer over to the left or over to the right or whatever it is. Three, the Christian life is a life of faith. We stand watch against the kind of comfortable cultural Christianity in which we add a little bit of Jesus to our quest for a better house Our quest for a better job, our quest for another kid or the next big thing in this life, living by faith means we keep our eye on the destination he has promised for us. It means our hope lies in the reality that Christ will make all things new. So folks, let's live by faith. Let's follow the good shepherd. Let's accept his guidance so that he can take us all the way home. Would you pray with me? Father, This uh, revelation of who you are, it it just unfolds before us like a kaleidoscope. It's so glorious to consider the reality that you are our good shepherd. And so first of all, Father, we offer you a word of repentance, of confession of sin. We've been trying to lead ourselves. We've said, ah, I like the Bible, but I think I might know better in this particular instance. Father, forgive us. Forgive us in the name of Jesus, who shed his blood on our behalf, who laid down his life for the sheep. Lord, I pray that you would enable us to walk in obedience to what you've commanded us to do. And most of all, I pray that you would give us true faith. Help us to live believing not in the bank account, not in the friends we have on social media, not in the family pictures on the wall, but in our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would make us faithful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.